Today we'll be reading from Malachi, chapter 2, verse 17, through chapter 3, verses 5. You have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him, you ask? By saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them. Or, where is the God of justice? See, I will send my messenger, who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant, whom you desire, will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who, can, but who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness, and the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord, as in days gone by, as in former years. So I will come near to you for judgment. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, and perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, and deprive aliens of justice, but do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. Okay, let's jump into Malachi. This morning, Don and Lisa Svensson read Malachi 2.17 through 3.5 for us. Thank you, Don and Lisa. Now, clearly Malachi is an Old Testament prophet. But this passage sounds particularly Old Testament, doesn't it? Who can endure his coming? He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. So I will come near you for judgment. What in the world is going on here? Well, believe it or not, I think this particular part of Malachi's message is meant to be inspiring for us. And I believe it's meant very practically as a plumb line, maybe for some of us. It's, it's, meant, it's meant to be a, a, a spot where we check our view of God and we rightly align it. Now, for others of us, maybe it's meant to be a guardrail to give course correction when we get off and, and we need to be recorrected. I, uh, I'll, I'll tell you something else about it. There's something absolutely magical about this passage, but we'll get to that at the very end. So for now, here's the essence of Malachi's message in the passage that the Svensons read for us. God is who God is. And God is what we need, although he's sometimes not what we expected or even wanted. So let me tease that out just a second. God is who God is. I mean, think about it. If God exists, then he is what he is by definition, and he's not something else. God is who God is. And God is what we need, what we really need. He's our true way forward. He's the real supply for our real needs. This is true for us as families, for us as individuals, for us as a nation. God supplies our needs. God corrects us, restores us, disciplines us, trains us. God is what we need. Although he's sometimes not what we expect or even want. How do we get that message and how does it apply to us? Okay, first, let's look at the nature of the complaint that these Jews offer. And we need to spend a little bit of time on this. Chapter 2, verse 17. Uh, you have wearied the Lord with your words, Malachi begins. How have we wearied him, you ask, by saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord. And he, he's obviously pleased with them. Or where is the God of justice? Look, these Jews have been told from the very beginning of their history that God acts on behalf of those who are in relationship with him and that he acts against the cause of those who disregard him. Uh, for example, Moses told them in, in Deuteronomy 18, 12, listen to this. 
Anyone who does these things is detestable to the Lord. And Moses has just offered a list of pagan worship practices and, and unfaithful and unjust dealings with others. He says, anyone who does these things is detestable to the Lord. Because of these same practices, the Lord will drive out those nations before you. And then that this same message gets repeated over and over again by the prophets. God acts on behalf of those who are in relationship with him, and he acts against the cause of those who disregard him. So eventually, it just seems like math, doesn't it? Or that's the way we try to reduce it anyway. I'm nice, plus I believe in God, plus I go to church sometimes, plus most people are much worse than I am, equals things should go really well for me. Isn't that what God promised? That things would go well for me always. Isn't that the point of religion? And yet, uh, these Israelites don't think things are going well at all. Now please understand, their lives aren't horrible. They live under the rule of Persia, that's true. They're surrounded by various groups of people who are unhappy with their presence, that's true. But they live relatively independent lives. They're more than capable of defending themselves. They are free to worship God with their whole hearts. They're free to marry, to raise families, and to lead productive lives. And they are in the process of rebuilding a nation that has the potential to be a city on a hill for the peoples of the whole world. However, things aren't at all easy. It's a pretty hard scrabble life, and, and the people around them are often hostile. Plus, those hostile peoples around them seem to be doing fine, maybe even prospering at times. So now, look at the complaint. And can you see how they have, have impugned God's character? They have challenged God's character. In effect, they've said, God, you are not who you said you are. You are not someone who comes through for those who are in relationship with you. Wait, wait, why do you say that, Malachi would have wanted to ask? And they would answer, well, because look at our lives. They're not at all easy, Malachi. Our lives are a real struggle. And, and look at our neighbors. Some of them are doing really well, and they don't care about God at all. They even make fun of him. Evidently, all who do evil are actually good in the eyes of the Lord. Evidently, that's how it works. Because it sure doesn't seem to work for us. Because one, we're really nice. Plus two, we go to temple and even sacrifice. Plus three, we believe in God. Plus four, our grandparents came here in faithfulness. Plus five, and those people are much worse than we are. So equals should be things, things should be going really well for us. But it's not. We talked about this the other day in our staff meeting. I think it was Crystal Klein who reminded us of Edom. Remember the first dispute with God back in chapter 1 of Malachi when God talked about his love for them. And then he pointed to Edom. Edom was their perennial enemy. And Edom was ultimately destroyed. Edom would eventually go away. They would no longer exist as a people. So God essentially reminds them, I mean, you could be like Edom. But no, I've protected you. I've nurtured this latest iteration of Israel. I made this happen. And by the way, pause for dramatic effect here. Let's remind ourselves of something important at this point. Nobody gets to live the life that is always up and to the right. Again, let me remind us, nobody gets to live that life. Now, I know that we know that. I suspect that most of us, maybe all of us, know that God told us that that's the way it is. Jesus told us plainly, in this world, you'll have trouble. We know this, and yet, whenever trouble comes, we have to fight the temptation to allow discouragement to dominate our field of vision. Why is this happening? Where are you, God? There wasn't supposed to be a pandemic. 
I wasn't supposed to have marriage trouble. I wasn't supposed to get cancer. I wasn't supposed to have a child with special challenges. I wasn't supposed to lose my job. That's not how the math works. But our faith is not a math equation. Their second challenge, in my opinion, is even worse. Where is the God of justice, they ask in verse 17. Now, please understand that something really close to this challenge is, is actually a frequent theme of some of the most faithful people in the Bible. Isaiah, for example, begs God to move in a powerful way. The psalmist asks, how long, O Lord, will you delay? And these kinds of prayers seem to move the heart of God. But there's a, there's a, there's a subtle but powerful difference between those prayers and the challenge that's offered in verse 17 here. Where is the God of justice? Can you hear the cynicism? This isn't a cry for help. This is an accusation. This is like looking at your spouse and asking, why are you so stupid? That's not a question. That's ridicule. Where are you, God, and your so-called justice? You're supposed to come, come on behalf of those who are in relationship with you. Well, why aren't you coming? Because we sure don't see anything. Okay, that's the complaint. And then God answers in ch chapter 3. In effect, God says, oh, I'm coming all right, but it's not going to be how you expected and maybe not even how you wanted. God begins by saying that there will be a messenger. See that in chapter 3. Interestingly, the Hebrew word is Malachi. The word sometimes refers to an angelic messenger. It usually refers to something epic. So here's what he says. See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly, and perhaps this suddenly means in a way you don't expect it, or, or it could mean at a time you don't expect it, or it could mean with shocking surprise. It probably encompasses all of those things. Then suddenly, the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. Look, the promise that God has always offered to his people is that he's with us. But sometimes he comes to our aid or to our defense in a remarkable, extraordinary, palpable way. Many of you experience those kinds of times in your life. And taken all together, those, those kinds of times roll up into this impression that God is definitely and profoundly involved with us and with the world and sometimes intimately so. And that kind of intimately so seems to be what Malachi is suggesting here. But even more. In this case, Malachi seems to be talking about something very out of the ordinary. He seems to be suggesting that God, quote, whom you desire, he adds, is going to come, all caps. He's going to appear with drama and with a kind of finality. And the hint, now it's just a hint, it isn't stated outright, at least not here, but the hint is that, that human history as we've said before at Gateway, is, is not a long string of events that repeats itself over an endless, in an endless circular fashion, on and on, world without end. No, the hint here is that human history is like an arrow that is moving toward a definite point, a definite end, a definite coming, if you will. And interestingly, God is choosing this particular time against this particular complaint to talk about that truth. You think you've been treated unfairly because your lives aren't exactly as you imagine they would be. You want me to come straighten it all out. Straighten it all out in the particular way you want it straightened. You don't know where I am. You, you want me to show up. Well, I'm coming. 
Ultimately, I'm coming fully and finally. And I warn you, it's not going to be exactly what you expect. Verse 2 spells it out. Who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? Now, these are not comforting words, but they are words of inspiration. Admittedly, it's mostly negative inspiration, but inspiration nonetheless. In other words, you're complaining. Watch what you complain about. God is who he is. And if you want him to come, well, he's going to come as he is. The whole package. He's going to come. Not your version of him, but the real thing. Many of you are are sports fans. In fact, many of you played sports at various levels. And you know that different coaches have different reputations. Some coaches tend to be thought of as winners. And some coaches tend to be thought of as stern disciplinarians. They coach people pretty hard. Some coaches are both. I think of the old uh, American college basketball coach from the University of Indiana in the 70s and 80s named Bobby Knight. Coach Knight built a dynamic winning program at Indiana. They were perennially one of the best college basketball teams in the country. And at one point, they won the national championship. Coach Knight also had a reputation for coaching his players really hard. In fact, he eventually lost his job at IU because some parents and alumni felt that he went too far. Well, if you went to play at Indiana for Coach Knight during his time there, you got all of Coach Knight. You couldn't go to Indiana and say, hey, I'd like the wins, but I don't want to be coached hard. I prefer a kind approach. No, if you went to IU, you got Coach Knight. You got all of him. All right, I'm sorry for the negative illustration, but God, that's, that's like God. God is what God is. And when he visits, he comes as himself, not our imagined version of him. That means he can come and direct us and grow us. He can literally make us better versions of ourselves. But to do that, he often comes with discipline. He allows hardship. He rebukes at times. And if we receive it with self-pity or with cynicism and spiritual laziness, it will not go well for us. If we want a really kind, benevolent grandfather who will overlook all of our shortcomings and still give us candy every time we visit, then we don't want God. If we want our lives just just, just like they are, just only easier. We don't want God. Verse 2 again. He will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify your spiritual leaders, the Levites, and refine them like gold and silver. And this, this process is what this Jewish community needed. They needed purification. They needed their hearts radically redirected because, verse 3, then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in the right way in righteousness and, and the offerings will, will be acceptable to the Lord as they, as they were a long time ago. In other words, then our spiritual lives will be invigorated, right offerings given, pleasing to God, received in the right way, right connection made. We'll be awakened. We'll feel alive again with real life, not with fake temporary life we gain from passing pleasure or from temporary have, temporarily having all of our circumstances aligned to our liking. No, this is real spiritual life. This is what we need. I'm uh, reminded of a story I've told a few times at Gateway, including recently, sorry, uh, a number of years ago, I went to a Blockbuster to rent the movie Little Buddha. Some of you remember Blockbuster store where you can rent movies. Uh, it's a biopic of the life of Buddha 
um, starring a very young Keanu Reeves. I took the movie to the counter at Blockbuster and his orange hair attendant who took the movie and looked at me and said, cool movie, man. Why, I asked. Well, because it's deeply spiritual, he said. Oh, huh. What do you mean deeply spiritual, I asked. Well, uh, he's starting to get warmed up. Uh, I, see, I see the spiritual life like a cafeteria line. All the food is good and, and nourishing, and we all need to eat. We all need spirituality. So all of us must walk through the line and pick what's best for us. It's all good. You just have to pick what works for you, and, and you have to be sincere about it. Oh, so, I answered. You have to pick whatever works, and you have to be sincere about it. Yes, replied our orange-haired philosopher. So what about Hitler, I said. Was he sincere? And did his spirituality work for him? Well, well, it has to be good for humanity, he answered. Said, so who gets to decide what's good for humanity, I asked. I decided to wrap up. Look, I'm a Christian, and I believe in the God of the Bible, and I believe the kind of spirituality that flows from that. I might be wrong. In fact, there may not be a God at all, but if God exists, he is what he is. We don't get to make up what he is. So by definition, not all stories about him are equally true. You can, you can be sincerely wrong in your belief. Look, I kind of feel sorry for Mr. Blockbuster to tell you the truth. He's been an illustration for me for 20 years now. But, but that encounter powerfully reminds me that God is what he is. And when he visits, sometimes we experience gifts and healing and joy and connection and warmth. And I seriously have experienced all of those things as a result of God's presence. And sometimes we experience shock and rebuke and contrition and sorrow and desire. And I've experienced all of those things as a result of God's presence as well. Because when God comes, He comes. And He meets us where we are at that point and gives us what we need. Because He is what we need. In this case, these Jews in their current condition... They were unprepared to meet the presence of God because what they needed was some tough medicine. All right. We also have to add that, that God's coming, as Malachi describes it, includes not only refining and purifying and restoring, but for another group of people, it includes judgment. Verse 5. So I'll come near to you for judgment. I'll be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, perjurers against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widow and the fatherless and deprive aliens of justice. But do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. You know, it would be interesting for all of us to try to identify modern equivalents for this list, wouldn't it? I think that would be a helpful exercise. Sorcerers, they, people who, they are people who try to control spiritual things through superstition or through the magic arts of some kind, adulterers. Perjurers, those who cheat at business, especially shorting people's wages. And those who oppress the widow and fatherless, those who deprive aliens of justice. We don't want to be in that company. God is who God is, and God is what we need. Although sometimes he's not what we expected or maybe even wanted. This week in that same staff discussion, uh, Alex compared us to a little kid who's terribly disappointed on his birthday because he didn't get a new bike and he couldn't eat a gallon of ice cream and maybe couldn't stay up all night. Meanwhile, he'd had a fun party with his friends. He got lots of good gifts and he already has a bike. And if he ate a gallon of ice cream and tried to stay up all night, he'd end up throwing up. In other words, 
what he wants is not what he needs. It's not even really what he wants. What our boy needs, he was given and more. And I thought about this later. And you know, it would be really bad if that little boy allowed that disappointment to ruin his mood. And worse, if, if he allowed it to ruin his relationship with his parents. And by the way, his disappointment is largely silly and unfounded. He didn't even want what would really make him happy in the long run. The point, of course, is that God is what we need. All right. We can't leave this passage without recognizing the, ma- without recognizing the magical element in it. So, this passage is not only an inspirational checkpoint, it, it's, it's a guardrail to help you know, manage our thoughts and our emotions. It's a plumb line against which we can rightly align our view of, of God. It's not only that, but it's an incredible prediction. In other words, Malachi is talking to these Jews about how God will visit them in their current sorry state, but he's also using epic kind of language that signals, hey, this is a big one. I'm also talking here about something universe altering. First, God says, I'm going to send my messenger to prepare. And this is exactly the language that's used of the ministry of John the Baptist in the New Testament. Do you see how mind-blowing that would be for first-century Jews? Wait, wait, wait. 400 years ago, the prophet was talking about a preparation before this epic coming, and you're telling me this is it? Yes. And then the messenger of the covenant, the Lord you are seeking, is coming. Well, that's Jesus. That's why when Philip asked Jesus one time, hey, Jesus, You've been talking a lot about the Father. It's awesome, man, and we're, we're starting to get it. But can you just show us the Father? I mean, can he just come? That's why Jesus answered, look, Philip, don't you know me? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Lord you're seeking, that's me. And that's why Jesus could tell us in Matthew 11, look, if, you, if you're just exhausted, emotionally, bone-tired, and you've had it, you're burdened and weighed down, if that's how you feel, then come to me, come connect with me, and I'll give you rest. I'm talking real rest. It's in me. Lay it down. I'm what you need. Take my yoke on you. And the yoke is that old harness thing that went on cattle to enable them to pull a plow. Have you seen it? Sometimes they're double, so two cows can pull together. Take my yoke. Join up with me. Learn from me, Jesus says. Learn how to do your life because my character will lead you. And from it, well, you'll learn and and you can experience real rest because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Connect to me. I'm what you need. Malachi was talking about Jesus here. And that is just flat out magical. And some of Jesus' first followers, they got it. That's why the Apostle Paul could say in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us a glory that far outweighs them all. Wait a minute, Paul. Light and momentary troubles? You were beaten near to death more than once, imprisoned, constantly worried about young Christians you'd left behind. Light and momentary troubles? Thrown out of numerous cities, suffering through riots and hunger, shipwrecked, and within an inch of your life, stranded, abandoned, in danger almost constantly. Light and momentary troubles, Paul? 
But when those troubles are compared with the, with the weight of glory, it's light and momentary. And those troubles, Paul says, are achieving for us. They are working out in us a glory that far outweighs them. So Paul continues, we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Some of Jesus' first followers got it. They, they got the memo. God is what we need, although he's not always what we expect. He is always what we need. And he showed up for us fully and finally in Jesus. So we fix our eyes on him. That's how we navigate disappointment, by looking to him. Let's pray. Father, this morning, whenever we're watching this, some of us are are struggling with disappointment right now because of where we are, because of the circumstances of our lives, because of whatever. Uh, Some of us, Lord, are, are even tempted to feel what these ancient Jews felt Uh, a deep and a settled disappointment about our lives or about you. I pray, God, for uh, the encouragement of your presence. I also, Lord, um, after looking at this passage, you know, we pray this with a sense of education. We kind of know there's some trepidation in asking this, but we pray for your presence. We pray for you to come. We pray that you would visit. We pray that you would come alongside us in a special way. Because you are what we need. So uh, this morning, we, um, we look to you. We, we, we fix our eyes on you. Not always what we expected, sometimes not what we think we want, but, but what we need. We look to you. In Jesus' name, amen.